Swiss Air Flight 111, en route New York to Geneva. It was nighttime, September 2nd, 1998. It suddenly plummeted nearly 8,000 feet into the Atlantic off the coast of Nova Scotia, killing all 229 on board. The tiny tourist village of Peggy's Cove immediately transformed into a command center. Shocked family members arrived to look out over the waves that held their loved ones. An army chaplain went to the water's edge and offered to pray with the grieving family of a 19-year-old California student. He led them in prayer, and then the family started to sing. They sang Amazing Grace. The chaplain noticed that all the rescue workers and onlookers were transfixed by the scene. Everyone stopped until they were done. He added, things like that were going on all day. Amazing grace in the middle of incredible sorrow. A hymn written 250 years ago, still powerful today, communicating gospel truth for all to hear. Welcome to Haven Today here on Monday. I'm Charles Morris, sharing the great story that's all about Jesus And we're launching a new series this week called How Sweet the Sound. I'm sure you've heard Amazing Grace played on bagpipes, maybe at a funeral, a procession, or a parade of some sorts. It is gripping. It'll stop you in your tracks. You'll stare. You'll listen. Just like they did at the story we heard from Nova Scotia when that plane crashed. Swiss Air 111. That story is found at the beginning of a brand new book called Amazing Grace, The Life of John Newton, and the surprising story behind this song. Two of my good friends wrote this book, Dr. Bruce Hindmarsh and Craig Borlase. Bruce is the scholar, Craig is the storyteller, and I encourage them to work together to find the human story of Newton and how the grace of Christ transformed this man who was a slave trader into someone proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ. And then how he communicated his understanding about all of this in the hymn that is now 250 years old this year, Amazing Grace. It is an astonishing story that this song has become the one that is universally sung at times of national tragedy. When life is inconsolable, this is the song people want to sing. Dr. Bruce Hindmarsh will join me in just a moment to talk about John Newton's conversion and his coming to know about grace. After the program, I'd like to send you a copy of this just-released hardback called Amazing Grace, The Life of John Newton, and the surprising story behind his song. The biography reads like a novel. It'll have you singing with joy how Christ's grace can transform the hardest of sinners. Our number to call after the program, we ask for your gift to support the ministry, 800-65-HAVEN, 800-65-HAVEN. But be sure and ask for a copy of this new book, Amazing Grace, or go to our website and make your gift there at haventoday.org, haventoday.org. And now let's open with the hymn we're talking about 250 years later. Amazing grace, how sweet. 
But now 
featuring bagpipes in the middle, Il Divo, and a single called, of course, Amazing Grace. I'm Charles Morris on Haven Today, and we're calling this program How Sweet the Sound. I want us to go to Vancouver, Canada, and I want to meet up with my longtime friend, Dr. Bruce Hindmarsh. Bruce Hindmarsh, you've written a new book, Amazing Grace, and I should give the subtitle, The Life of John Newton and the Surprising Story Behind His Song. You wrote it along with our friend Craig Borlase, who's in England. You're the scholar behind this project. You've been studying John Newton ever since you went to Oxford. Most of our audience listening to us today has heard the name John Newton. But kind of give us the short story of John Newton's life, and then we'll dig into some of the aspects of his life then. Well, John Newton would be known for maybe people might know that he wrote Amazing Grace and other hymns, Glorious Things of the Earth Spoken, How Sweet the Name of Jesus Sounds, and some of these hymns. Some people might know that he was a friend of William Wilberforce, and he encouraged him in the abolition campaign against slavery. In England. In England. Mm -hmm. And some people might also know that he was a friend of the poet William Cooper. These are some of the ways that people maybe sort of have heard his name. But his story is so interesting. 30 years ago, when I started working on Newton, I was working on his theology and his ministry, and he was an absolutely key figure in the early evangelical awakening in Britain. But for this book... A biography, we looked at the whole of his life, and I was reminded, Charles, what a remarkable story. I mean, several times he should have died. There's so many mm. near-death experiences. Mm. There were terrible things that happened to him. And, and this is a young man you're talking yeah, about. Yeah, even as a young the... man. So at uh, six years of age, you know, his mother died when his father was away at sea, and he is left all alone in the world at six years of age. And your heart kind of goes out to this uh, young boy. He had learned the hymns of Isaac Watts from his mother. His mother was hoping someday he would go into the ministry. Mm. And you have the sense of a kind of childhood Eden, a kind of paradise from which he is suddenly expelled, and the world seems harsh. It seems so harsh. Mm. And you're, you're sympathetic with this young man. Well, it was a harsh world. It was. Living in London, but then having a cantankerous father who, you know, yeah. ruled with an iron fist and wasn't ever there. Yeah, he described his father as over, he said, my father overawed my spirit. Mm. And then the new kind of, his father remarried right away. And in that new step family, he just never felt at home. Right. He never felt at wow. home. And he um, fell in love uh, sort of, you know, there's a reckless love and reckless decisions that he makes because he's in love. He falls in love with a woman named Mary Catlett. And, and that's what, around when he first met her, he was, what, he's a, 16, yeah, that's 17? Yeah, right. he's a teenager, and she's an early teenager. Okay. And, yeah, um, she was younger than he was. That's yes, right. So when we think of John Newton as a young man, you know, he, he said his motto at that time as a teenager was never deliberate. He would just run off in all directions and um, without thinking, like many teenagers. And he fell punch drunk in love with this young woman, Mary Catlett. He's maybe 16 years of age, and she's maybe around 14, something like that. But one of the things that Craig noticed, and he's so good at this, my co-author, as he feels his way into the story, is this is the home where John Newton's mother died. It was mm -hmm. a family friend, mm -hmm. friends of uh, Newton's uh, mother. And, and Craig had a sense that this was like 
the family that Newton was looking for, where he felt mm. estranged from mm. his step family. Mm. I think there's probably something to that. Three times in a row, Charles, in December, John Newton overstayed and couldn't tear himself away from the Catlett home. Three times in a row, he got in trouble with his elders. He got in trouble with the Navy because he just couldn't tear himself away. So he's a young man who is impulsive, who is upsetting people's plans. He's getting himself into trouble. And where he really got himself into trouble was when he was 18. He is out kind of strutting about in his uh, sailor's clothing and uh, not being very cautious at a time when war is threatening with France. Mm -hmm. And they can, there's laws that allow the Navy to legally kidnap people just to grab them. Because they needed sailors. They needed sailors. And so it's like eminent domain. They can just come in and grab you. And if you don't have the right papers, you're in the Navy. So at 18 years of age, mm. six years of age, he loses his mother. At 18 years of age, he's kidnapped and finds himself in the, in the Navy. And it's a brutal world the, 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 of the Navy. This is not pleasure sailing. <laughs> this is not a cruise. <laughs> and uh, his father managed to get him promoted to midshipman, which is like a junior officer. But Newton is kind of lording it over the other sailors. He's kind of like showing off. He's being kind of rough with the the common seamen sailing, as they say, before the mast. But then impulsive again, they're uh, on the south coast of England and about to head out for a long tour of duty in the East Indies. And Newton goes AWOL. He leaves thinking, I can just go walk, you know, to see my father. I'll, I'll find my way to my father and he'll get me out of this. I don't want to be in the Navy because he's so in love with Mary Catlin. <sighs> Well, he is captured. They send a crew out looking for him. And when he comes back on board the ship, this is around 1745, he is whipped with a cat of nine tails. He is stripped of his rank. He is placed in the midst of those very sailors that he had formerly been abusing. This is a low point. This is where things are looking really bad. And as the ship is leaving the coast of England, he looks over the gunnels and he was seriously contemplating murder-suicide. Suicide, Kill yes. the captain, and, and most, kill himself. Mo- most people don't realize that when you were lashed with a cat of nine tails, those stripes left scars. That's right. For the rest of your life. That's right. Which, of course, is symbolic of what would happen. Let's go forward. He's got this... This personality where he wants to escape, his father actually saves him multiple times, even Mm -hmm. though his father Mm -hmm. is this iron rod who didn't really appreciate his son doing this. He ends up in Africa himself. Let's go to the slave, being a slave ship captain or just before that. So just before that, you know, he is desperate to get out of the Navy and through a kind of chance event where they're, they're trading some sailors out of the uh, merchant marine for some sailors in the Navy. They're exchanging off the coast of uh, West Africa. And Newton says, I'll go, I'll go, take me. And the captain probably realized, I'm just as happy to get rid of this guy. And as Newton descends the ladder of the naval warship into the merchant ship, I think, Charles, he is literally or and symbolically descending into the dark world of the slave trade. Mm. So that's the point in his early 20s where he he joins a slave ship. This ship called the Levant is a Guinea ship, and it's starting into the West, down the West African coast, gathering slaves. Mm. He's a steward Mm. on the ship. Mm. So he's in charge of the stores and so on. 
and uh, and this is where he's sort of encountering the slave trade for the first time. Wow. He goes on then to become a slave ship captain himself. Well, even just before that, he's on this ship for about six months. And then, again, impulsively, somebody on the ship is going to go set up a little fort on the coast that'll be the kind of a base for collecting slaves and then selling them. And he says, oh, I'll go. I'll be an apprentice to you, and I'll I'll, I'll join this enterprise, and maybe I can make money in the west coast of Africa. And this is another really low point for him because he thinks, you know, maybe he can make his fortune here, but instead he ends up mistrusted by this man and by this man's mistress, his black mistress, who's a powerful figure. And he ends up, he's malarial, he's nearly dying of fever, he ends up himself enslaved. He ends up in chains. It's other slaves that have sympathy on him and bring him food. He nearly dies unloved, of starvation, of disease, abused, and far away from home. And yet the surprising thing is he still doesn't really see yet that slavery itself is wrong, even though he was enslaved. There are these moments as a young man where he resolves to resolve to resolve that I'm going to do the right thing. He's reading the Bible. He's doing things. And and, and that's a little later on. And he fails again. Mm -hmm. At some point, he realized he was a sinner. Yeah. When do you think that was? Yeah. Oh, that's really, really well put, Charles, because I think throughout his youth, with the, he has this memory of his mother and so on, and it's like he resolves and he tries and he fails, and he resolves and he fails. And at one level, like, you know, there may be some of your listeners who feel this way, that at a certain point, they just feel like it's too hard and I give up, uh-huh. and I just keep disappointing myself, you know? Then he also encounters some literature that makes him feel more comfortable just being sort of agnostic and 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 sophisticated and gives him a sort of a place to be they call it deism in the 18th century so it gives him a place to be a sort of a bit more hard-hearted about god and about anything religious and he had a keen mind too oh he had a keen mind he's reading latin he's reading euclid even while he's enslaved on this little desert island but his father had sent a ship to look for him And you're right, his father, there's a sort of sympathetic side to his father. keeps kind of trying to reach out in various ways. And there's a ship called the Greyhound that stops on the coast of Africa and asks after John Newton. And at that point, he didn't actually even want to leave the the coast of Africa. And so the ship captain lied to him and said, uh, an absolute fortune has been left to you. You need to come back to England because you're going to have like 400 pounds a year and you're going to be set for life. And he he lies and gets him on board the ship. (laughs) And so this, this ship, the Greyhound, is trading down the coast of Africa, not a slave ship. This is a a cargo ship, if you like, trading merchandise, dyers, wood, and various things. Beeswax, I think. Beeswax. Yes. And and, uh, Newton, at this point, is sort of free of responsibilities. He can just be on this ship and make its way home. But the ship, a bit recklessly, makes quite a long journey. Like, they're, they're trading for almost a year, all the way down to equatorial Africa, And then they're going to try to make it home in one huge arcing voyage that is going to pass 
Brazil and the West Indies and go all the way up past Newfoundland in one big arc to try to make it back to Ireland, mm-hmm. even though, you know, the ship is going to be out of repair, the ropes and the sails and, and so on. And, and I think Newton is even aware that this is a bit reckless. And what happens is... Um, you know, he started reading whatever literature was kind of around on the ship, and he was reading, you know, some some devotional books, and you know, you could tell that there's something going on, a kind of pre-evangelism, if you like, something mm-hmm. that he's reading mm-hmm. that is sowing some seeds. But then he's awakened, March twenty-first, in the middle of the night, in a North Atlantic storm. There's somebody uh, who, in front of him, is climbing up out of the hold of the ship onto the deck, and they're swept overboard. And it is desperate, and the waves are mountain high, and the ship is out of control. And he finds himself as they're at the pumps, and as he's piloting the ship in the night, he mutters a prayer If this will not do, then the Lord have mercy. And I think that's the moment, Charles, where it's like his hardened exterior cracks, and all the agonies of a repressed conscience, and all that he knew to be true about God, he just thinks. Oh, how can there be mercy for me? Who am I to cry out to God for mercy? Look at what I've done. Because of all the things that I've done. So it's not just the awful things that happened to him. It's the things that he himself had done for which he needed mercy. And he begins to realize this. And you think that was the beginning of his finding grace, not just realizing the depth of his sin. I think it was, but... Craig likes to say that event is sort of made for television. It's sort of a made for television conversion. It's a Damascus Road conversion, a foxhole conversion. It's so dramatic. And the story we want to hear is is sort of one and done. He has this great conversion and then he writes Amazing Grace or something and he's uh, but you we know We want what? to make it easy. Yeah. That is not the Christian life, <laughs> no. Bruce. And it wasn't it wasn't for him. In fact, he looks back and he's very clear. He says to people, "My conversion wasn't like a noonday brightness like Apostle Paul. It was more like the dawning of the day with a kind of twilight." And it was very it was only very gradually that it got brighter. So he wants us to see his conversion, if you like, not V shaped, but U shaped. That it, it takes a while. Yeah. If you don't know what he meant by the hymn Amazing Grace, all you need to know are those two lines that he said as he almost was as yeah. he was dying. Yeah. And he was almost dead. Yeah. Share those lines with us. Well, that's right, Charles. He said, um, you know, many of us have uh, loved ones who near the end of their age begin losing their memories and so on. And he said, my memory is nearly gone. But I remember two things, that I am a great sinner and that Christ is a great Savior. Mm-hmm. And it is like as he, li- he lived long enough to really reckon with the depth of his iniquity as a young person, the depth of his sinfulness, and as you get closer to the light of Jesus Christ, more impurities show up. And as he walked toward Jesus, he just let that he let himself be exposed. And I think his repentance and his contrition and his humility grew deeper and deeper, and his trust in Christ even more deeper. And that's reflected in those lines, isn't it? Mm. Bruce, you don't sound like a professor. You sound like a follower of Jesus. <laughs> <laughs> that's all that matters. Yeah. Thank you very much. Bless you, brother. And you.
Haven today. How sweet the sound. And I'm so thankful my friend Dr. Bruce Hindmarsh could come on the program today. We barely scratched the surface of Newton's story and the writing of the most famous hymn in the world. So when you read the new book called Amazing Grace, The Life of John Newton, and the surprising story behind his song, you're going to get new insights into how God's amazing grace changed Newton's life. And this year marks 250 years since Amazing Grace was first sung. And my good friends Craig Borlase and Dr. Bruce Hindmarsh have written this just-released hardback on this historic occasion. Honestly, it's unlike anything else previously written about Newton. It's been a joy to see this story finally told so well. My wife walked into my office this morning and she had just finished the first 10 pages and said, this is the most amazing biography. I hope you say the same thing after you get it from us. As our thanks for your gift to the ministry, just released hardback, Amazing Grace, The Life of John Newton, and the surprising story behind his song. You just need to call us right now. Call us at 800-65-HAVEN, 800-65-HAVEN, or you can travel to our website and make your gift there at haventoday.org. That's haventoday.org. I'm Charles Morris. Thanks so much for joining me. Won't you come back again next time? When again, together, we'll share the great story. It's all about Jesus here on Haven Today. Here for your encouragement and your walk with Jesus, I'm Charles Morris with Haven Ministries, inviting you to anchor your day in God's Word. Pull yourself up by your own bootstraps. One of the most famous Americanisms of our day, and it isn't just Americans saying it either. I've heard Canadians and Europeans say it too. The idea of self-made men and women intrigues us. You probably wanted to be one yourself. We all do, deep down, inside. But we can't pull ourselves up by our own bootstraps all the way to God. Paul reminds us, No one who relies on the law is justified before God because the righteous live by faith. No one other than Jesus can keep the law perfectly. But the good news is when we trust in Christ, his obedience is credited to us, not self-made. We're Jesus-made. Get Anchor devotional in print monthly. Visit getanchor.com.